0: For the last 15 weeks, we have been walking through the events of the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. And Scripture reveals the importance of this week. Matthew devotes eight of His 28 chapters to the last week in Jesus' life. Mark, six of His 16 chapters, Luke, six of His 24 chapters, and John, uses 10 of his 21 chapters, almost half of his gospel, to share the story of the last seven days of Jesus' life. All this to say, if you don't grasp the significance of this Holy Week, you can't fully understand Jesus or His mission. And as much as we might wish otherwise, we can't have Holy Week without Good Friday, It's not called Good Friday because of what was done to Jesus. It is called Good Friday because what was done for us. And unless you confront the reality of Good Friday, you cannot fully appreciate the victory of Easter Sunday. Friday of the week was a long day. It actually started the night before. One event led nonstop to the next. After the Last Supper in the upper room, Jesus and the disciples walked out to a secluded spot on the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane, and there Jesus prayed into the night. His men, fatigued by the late hour and the hectic schedule, fell asleep. Suddenly in the middle of the night, actually in the wee hours of the morning, the disciples awoke to shouts and the sound of swords and shields, and the next few hours, were a blur of activity. The soldiers arrested Jesus. They hauled him before the Jewish high priest. And before the sun was up, a specially called meeting of the Jewish council interrogated him. Witnesses who were paid to lie stepped up and leveled their distorted and inflammatory charges against him. That Friday morning, the whole secret trial process had been illegal. But Jesus did not protest. He did not retaliate verbally. He did not act out physically. Isaiah had prophesied like a lamb before its shearers. He did not open his mouth. By sunrise Friday, the pace quickened. Things turned more violent. The soldiers mocked Jesus. They roughed Him up for sport. They pressed a crown of thorns down on his head, and they laughed, and they put a purple robe on him, and they paraded him to Pilate's palace. And Pilate knew that the charges against Jesus were baseless, but he ordered him to be scourged to pacify the Jewish leaders. The scourge was a long leather whip of several strands, weighted and embedded with nails and bone. And the Jews, they had a law about the number of lashes, but the Romans who scourged Jesus, had no such law. They beat a man until they thought he was near death, and that's when they quit. And many prisoners did not survive a Roman scourging. And Jesus' flesh on His back became like raw hamburger and the pain unimaginable. At 9 o'clock that Friday morning, the soldiers drove the nails into His hands and feet, They lifted him up on a cross beam and dropped it into a hole. And for six long hours, Jesus hung suspended between heaven and earth, dying by minutes, one excruciating minute after another. And the word excruciating is a word that we most often associate with pain, isn't it? Excruciating pain, do you know it comes from a Latin word which means to crucify, literally a pain like the pain of crucifixion. Crucifixion was not so much an execution, it was more public torture. And at noon on Friday, the sky over Jerusalem turned strangely black for three hours and the earth shook. And at three o'clock that afternoon, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. And when He had said this, He breathed his last. By now it was getting close to 6 o'clock. After piercing his side, the soldiers removed his body from the cross. Friends carried Jesus' body away to a borrowed tomb. They hurriedly wrapped it in a shroud. They would have to finish the burial process after the Sabbath. The Romans sealed the entrance to the tomb and posted a guard. And so Friday of the most important week in human history has ended with an empty cross standing tall in time and space. And this cross is representative of both an intersection and a bridge. In fact, that's my sermon this week in a sentence, in one exclamatory sentence. The cross is both an intersection and a bridge. Now, you know that an intersection is a crossroads. It's a place that calls for a decision. And a bridge is a span that gets you over a chasm. A bridge links. It connects two things. So the cross is, first of all, an intersection. And I've always always thought it to be profound and appropriate that the cross is the symbol most identified with the Christian faith, because the cross forms an intersection, an intersection, and an intersection always calls for a decision of some kind. You have to make a decision about going one way or the other. In fact, the biblical record personifies this choice, this intersection, in the lives of two men. It's recorded in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. The other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified Him along with the criminals, one on His right, the other on His left. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, these other two men who were crucified with Jesus apparently deserved to be there. They're both identified as criminals. And one of them chose to join in with the religious leaders in the crowd that reviled Jesus. He fell right in with the insults. He fell right in with the taunting. He rejected Jesus. But the other criminal changed his mind about Jesus, and he confessed his own sin He said, we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he professed his faith in Jesus, and he sought his mercy, and he stood alone. And he made an independent decision, a personal decision. He chose to believe and to receive from the Lord the promise of eternal life. Now, have you noticed that life is pretty much a series of choices? As you move through your life passages, you choose your friends, You choose your college, you choose your clothes, you choose your life mate, you choose your job, you choose your car, you choose your home. We choose to be dependable in the workplace or we choose to be undependable employees. We choose to be good parents, conscientious parents, or we choose to be careless parents. We choose to pay our bills or we allow the law to come and collect the money. Life. Life is made up of one choice after another. Max Lucado tells the story of Edwin Thomas, a talented actor. During the last half of the 1800s, this man with a huge voice had few equals, debuting in Richard III, at the age of fifteen, he quickly established himself as a premier Shakespearean actor. In New York, he performed Hamlet for one hundred consecutive nights. In London, he won the approval of the tough British critics. When it came to tragedy on the stage, Edwin Thomas was in a select group, and when it came to tragedy in life, the same could be said as well. Edwin had a brother, John who was also an actor but never rose to Edwin's stature. In 1863, the two brothers were actually together in a performance of Julius Caesar. And the fact that Edwin's brother John took the role of Brutus was an eerie harbinger of what awaited the brothers and the nation just two years later because John, who played the assassin in Julius Caesar, is the same John who took the role of assassin in the Ford Theater on a crisp April night in 1865. He stole quietly up the back stairs of the rear of the Ford Theater and fired a bullet into the head of President Abraham Lincoln. Yes, the last name of the brothers was Booth, Edwin Thomas Booth, John Wilkes Booth. Edwin was never the same. After that night, shame. From his brother's crime drove him into retirement and he might never have returned to the stage had it not been for a strange, almost providential twist of fate at a New Jersey train station. Edwin was waiting for his coach to arrive when a well-dressed young man pressed by the crowd lost his footing and fell between the platform and a moving train. Without hesitation, Edwin locked his leg around a railing, reached down, grabbed the man, pulled him up to safety. Weeks later, he would receive a letter from Ulysses S. Grant thanking him for saving the life of the child of an American hero, Abraham Lincoln, his only son to reach maturity. The boy Edwin Booth yanked to safety was Robert Todd Lincoln. How ironic that while one brother killed the president, the other brother saved the president's son, two brothers. One chose life, the other chose death. And although their story is dramatic, it is certainly not unique in biblical history. Abel and Cain, both sons of Adam, Abel chooses God, Cain chooses murder, and God lets him. Abraham and Lot, both pilgrims in Canaan. Abraham chooses God. Lot chooses Sodom. And God lets him. David and Saul, both kings in Israel. David chooses God. Saul chooses power and prominence. And God lets him. Peter and Judas both deny their Lord. Peter chooses mercy. Judas chooses suicide and God let him. In every age of history and on every other page of Scripture, this truth is revealed. God allows us to make our own choices. And Jesus revealed it when He said that we each could choose. We could choose either the narrow gate or the wide gate. We could choose the narrow way or the broad way. We could choose the big crowd or we could choose the smaller crowd. We could choose to build our lives on a rock or sand. We can serve God or money. We can be numbered among the sheep or the goats. Finally, we read it in Matthew 25, 46, and they, that is those who rejected God or ignored God, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So God gives us choices and these choices have eternal rewards or they have eternal consequences and Calvary is a, an historic visible reminder why two crosses on either side of Jesus why was Jesus in the center why not on the right or the left could it be that could it be that the two crosses on the place of the skull occupied by the criminals, symbolize one of God's greatest gifts, the gift of choice. And the greatest intersection in time and space is the intersection that is revealed by the cross. And so there are times when God will send thunder to stir us, and there are times when He will send blessings to lure us to make the right choice. But ultimately, ultimately, God is silent as He honors us with the freedom to choose Jesus or reject Him, ultimately choosing where we will spend eternity. And what an honor it is because in so many areas of life, we just don't have a choice. Think about it. You didn't choose your gender, you didn't choose your parents, you didn't choose your siblings, you didn't choose your looks, you didn't choose your race, you didn't choose your place of birth, and that angers some people. It's not fair, they say. It's not fair that I was born in poverty or that I am not musically or athletically inclined. But the scales of life were forever tipped on the side of fairness when God planted a tree in the Garden of Eden. And when a tree was planted on Calvary's hill, all complaints were silenced. When Adam and Eve's descendants were given free will, any injustice in this life is offset by the honor of choosing our destiny in the next. And would you want it any other way? I wouldn't want it the other way. You get to choose everything in this life but no choice of where to spend eternity. So you, cho- you choose the nose you want, and you choose the color of hair you want, and the DNA you want in this life, but no choice of your destiny in the life to come. Would you like to order your earthly life like you order a meal? I'll take good health. I'll take a high IQ. I'll pass on the hairy back and being pigeon-toed but give me high-speed metabolism. It didn't happen. When you came to life on earth, you weren't given a voice. You weren't given a vote. But when it comes to life after death, you are given a choice. And in my book, that seemed like a better deal. A much better deal. Well, this gift of free will offsets any injustice that I feel. It can also offset any mistakes I have made. That thief who repented, he made some bad mistakes in his life. He chose the wrong crowd. He chose the wrong morals. He chose the wrong behavior. But was his life wasted? Is he spending eternity reaping the consequences of his bad attitudes and his bad actions? No, just the opposite. He's enjoying the rewards of the one good choice he made. And in the end, all the bad stuff in his life was redeemed by one solitary good decision. And maybe you've made some bad decisions in the past about friends, about career, about spouse. You look back over your life and say, if only, if only, if only. Forget that. The choice is yours now while you live because of the intersection of the cross. How can the two Booth brothers be born by the same mother, grow up in the same home, and one choose life and the other choose death? I don't know. But they did. How could two men see the same Jesus and one choose to mock Him and the other choose to pray to Him? I don't know. But they did. And when one prayed, Jesus loved him enough to save him. And when the other mocked, Jesus loved him enough to let him. He allowed him the choice. And He does the same for you and me as we stand at the greatest intersection in life, the cross of Jesus Christ. But the cross is not only an intersection. The cross is also a bridge. Look at it. Can you see it? Can you see the span of the bridge? The cross beam is a bridge that links God to mankind, every tongue, tribe, and nation. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one mediator. We could say one bridge between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all men. That is, speaking of the cross, when Jesus gave Himself as a ransom to pay for our sins and secure our peace with God, breaking down the dividing wall of sin, bridging the division created by our sin. And some of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament speak to the reality of the cross being a bridge, Galatians 6.14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Colossians 2.14, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled that which was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 119, for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him through Jesus and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, to build a bridge to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through His blood shed on the cross. So, How do we cross over this bridge into the salvation of God, into the family of God, into the presence of God? Well, some people say you can't do anything. You can't do a thing. It's all up to God. There's absolutely nothing we can do, nothing we should do. We are completely passive. It is a matter of divine election. Well, it is true. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's just true that we don't deserve to be saved. It is true that we cannot engineer our own salvation. It is true. We cannot work our way into it. We'll never be able to say to God, God, look what I did. Now you owe me. At the same time, the nature of a covenant relationship is that it is mutual. It is mutual. God has initiated our salvation, but we must respond. He has extended the gift. We must receive the gift. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's will. That's divine election. God's chosen everybody to be saved. He wants everybody to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish. That's what he wants. But the fact is that some will perish. Why? Well, because some are unwilling to repent. They stand at that intersection we just talked about and they make a choice. And some people want to use the thief on the cross as a model for becoming a Christian. I want to give you the three reasons why the thief on the cross is not a model for conversion. First of all, because the thief on the cross lived and died under the old covenant, under the law of Moses. The new covenant of the grace of Christ was not in effect until the church was established in Acts chapter 2. In other words, the will of Christ was not probated until Peter preached the gospel of grace for the first time and people were called to respond with repentance and baptism in Acts 2 and 3,000 did it. They chose to do it. Well, also, practically speaking, the thief on the cross was limited in how he could respond. After all, he is bound to a cross, he is in the shadow of death. The third reason why the thief on the cross is not a model is because he appealed to the Lord in the flesh, he received his promise directly from the Lord Jesus. And none of these conditions apply to us. We do not live under the old covenant law. We are not dying on a cross. And we do not have access to the physical presence of Christ. So, where are we going to go for models of conversion? Well, the book of Acts in the New Testament tells us how we respond to the good news of the grace of God in Christ. And it might look something like this if we were to draw it out. Now, folks. I am not an artist nor the son of an artist. And after last night, they were going to forcibly enroll me in the Crossroads Worship Arts Academy (laughs) in the art class. (laughs) Salvation is not so much an event as it is a process. It's a lifelong process. There's a sense in which I was saved, I am saved, I am being saved. It begins... At the time we believe, that's when the process begins. And the process culminates either when we die or when Christ returns. And so there's a verse that says in Philippians 2.20, Continue to work out your salvation. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. So that's Salvation. It's a process. It begins when you believe. It begins when you die or Christ returns. Now, above this line is is God's role in our salvation. And down here, this is our role in salvation. This is what God does. This is what we do. How do we respond? That's what we're concerned about today. So we go to the book of Acts and we start looking through the seven detailed conversion accounts in the book of Acts and we see what people did. And here's what they did, as succinctly as I can put it. Number one, they repented. Number two, they were baptized. By immersion, the word baptism means, in the Greek language, to wash by immersion. And then they lived a Christian life, a faithful Christian life. Every conversion account includes these components. Our salvation begins when we are believers. It ends when we die or Christ returns. And what do we do? What is our response? How do we receive the gift? How do we respond to God's grace? In the book of Acts, we see it in every conversion account. There was a choice to repent. 3,000 did, but there were thousands that did not. Repentance is part of it. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus, knew it. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he repented of what he had been doing, executing Christians, persecuting Christians. Repentance is part of it, this change in direction, this turning around. And you've seen it in your own life, many of you, most of you, and you've seen it in the lives of other people. It's a wonderful thing to see people change direction. And they're living for themselves, living for themselves, living for themselves, and they turn. And in that turning process, we see repentance. And they begin to live their life with another lord. They're no longer in the driver's seat. Jesus Christ has taken the reins. He has truly taken the wheel. Repentance, baptism. It's there in every one of the conversion accounts. Now, there are some people who for some reason are stuck on that. And they don't think that's necessary. It's 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 the only command given in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's present in every one of the conversion accounts. It's linked to the cross and the power of the cross in Romans chapter 6. It is not something that should be left out. And if we're going to leave that out, then by what authority do we do that? can Can we also leave out repentance? We can't pick and choose how we're going to respond to God's grace. We've got to look at the commands of Scripture. We've got to look at the biblical models. And then living a faithful Christian life. Now, there are some people who say, well, you don't have to do that either. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Listen, you cannot lose your salvation, but you can walk away from it. You can forfeit it. You can throw it away. You can cast it away. And if, if, it's, if it's unnecessary, if the Christian life is unnecessary, everything from Romans 1 to Reve- Revelation 22 in Scripture would be unnecessary. Because everything from Romans 1 to Reve- Revelation 22 is all about living the Christian life in the culture. And our teaching, our instruction on how to live as faithful Christians, live in ways that honor God and serve people, all comes from Romans 1 to Revelation 22. So we can't leave out the Christian life. We're, We're to be faithful until death and receive a crown of life. This is a very minimal kind of response. It makes perfect sense. Repentance, commitment in Christian baptism, and being raised to walk in a new life, the Christian life. Now we concern ourselves with everything down here. There are people who want to put check marks up here about uh, exactly what moment a person is saved. Well, a person can be baptized but if they don't repent they just, they go down a dry center and come up a wet center and the only thing that's changed is their clothes. So, there's got to be repentance And there needs to be baptism and there needs to be faithful Christian living. And God is the one who knows the hearts of people. And He is the one who makes the check mark above the line. This is above my pay grade. Don't ask me who's saved and who's lost because I I can't read people like God can. Here's what I'm going to concern myself with, this lifelong process. And this is what I'm going to focus on, that right there. Well, the cross is a bridge. And Friday of the week ended in death. The disciples were distraught. The relatives of Jesus were despairing. The friends of Jesus were dejected. Anyone who has buried a loved one knows the feeling. You stand at the gravesite and time stands still. It feels like a bad dream. And you pray to wake up and find out that things were just like they were before. Death and the grave just cast a shadow over everything. And some of you have been there. And all of us will be there. And in those moments, it's good to think of Good Friday. And remember what Jesus did. Remember the cross. An intersection. You can choose. A bridge. You can cross over into life. Yes, it was Friday, and it was a dark day. It was Friday, but Sunday's coming, and the cross... Is an intersection that calls for a decision from us. The cross provides a bridge for us, but we make the decision about how we will choose and whether we will cross. That's why we close every service at Crossroads with a time of commitment, a time of decision. And I want to ask you to stand on your feet for prayer. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have one last song and give you the opportunity to respond. We'll be here at the front to meet you if you have a decision about Christ or Crossroads. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for the cross. When we see it on the steeples of church buildings, when we see it around the necks of people, when we see it tattooed on someone's arm, we're reminded that it is an intersection and it is a bridge. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that. We pray, Father, for that person here this morning who needs to make the right decision. That person who needs to to cross over that bridge today, today, on Good Friday. In anticipation of Good Friday this week, on this Palm Sunday, Lord, we pray for heartfelt consideration of this life-changing decision in Jesus' name. Amen.